Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Will you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, come and fill this place. Fill each one of us to overflowing. And Lord, speak through me now that my words would be your words and your grace and your truth would be spoken, heard, and received deep in our hearts here today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, I can be patient as long as I know how long I need to be patient. Have you ever said something like that? Uh, You know, because patience is hard. It's hard. It's hard enough, but it's really, really hard when the duration of your patience is unknown. And I've told this story before, but uh, I'll tell it again. Uh, I relied heavily as a child on the Advent wreath in my church. It was my way of keeping track and keeping it together as I waited patiently for Christmas. So I just had to look at the number of candles lit each Sunday to know how much longer until Christmas. I could see it. I could see how long I needed to be patient. And I could hang in there until that night when the the white candle in the middle of the, the wreath was finally there and was lit. Hey, we're here. It's Christmas Eve. We've made it. That was how I waited with a bit of patience for the annual celebration of the first advent of Christ's nativity. And if you'll just ask any of our children here uh, in the church, they'll tell you patience waiting for the first advent of Christmas is hard. It's hard. But how much harder is it for all of us to wait for the second advent? The day of days, the the triumphant day of the Lord, when the Lord Jesus will return, and to borrow a phrase from J.R.R. Tolkien, when everything sad is going to come untrue. The truth is we all can be a little impatient. We can all be basically like Bart and Lisa Simpson in the back seat of the proverbial car of life, calling out to our Heavenly Father in the front seat, are we there yet? 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 We look around at the daily tribulations that we face individually and that we face as a human race across this troubled planet, and we cry out like the psalmist in Psalm 13 does, how long, O Lord? Are we there yet? When is the day of your return? I can be patient if you tell me how long I need to be patient. And you know, people have been like this for ages. This isn't new in our generation. It's been like this all along. A perfect example of one who had hit his limit and couldn't wait any longer on the Lord's return was the prophet Isaiah. 
from whom we just heard in our Old Testament lesson this morning. This passage from Isaiah chapter 64 comes when Israel had uh, actually received something they had been waiting for. They had been finally released from their captivity, their exile in Babylon by the, Babylon, by the Persian conqueror King Cyrus. But as they returned to Jerusalem, at least some of them, as they returned to Jerusalem, the city was in a terrible state, and so were many of the people. And so in chapter 64, Isaiah has had enough, and he cries out to the Lord, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Those are the words of a man who had seen enough of the devastating consequences of his nation's rebellion. Rebellion against God. Hatred towards one another. He had seen devastation in exile, and now, even in Israel's return, all that he sees is Jerusalem in rubble. His patience had worn Thin, and he wanted the Lord to come down and sort everything out. And he knew only the Lord could do that. He knew better than to think that Israel could find it in herself to sort out any of its own mess. He knew that he and his nation were like clay. And God, their father, He's the potter. And this lump of clay needed to be placed back on the wheel for the potter to reshape and remold that clay with his hands. His hands. Here in this section of the book of the prophet Isaiah, uh, Isaiah asks a version of the question that Hunter Myers asked of us all last week in his sermon on Christ the King Sunday when he, he asked us, is God among us? Or not? Isaiah asked God in the last verse of chapter 64, he asked, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? He's asking, are you among us, O God, or not? How long, O Lord? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And we know from our vantage point in history that, in fact, Isaiah's lone cry from the midst of a broken people in a broken Jerusalem was answered many hundreds of years later, perhaps in not so grand a fashion as he might have imagined. The rending of heaven was more like a little crack through which the Lord slipped. There were no quaking mountains or boiling seas at his coming. He came almost imperceptibly. A little infant born to a humble virgin in a lowly stable, 
But he came. Emmanuel was among us. There was the first advent, the incarnation of God's only begotten Son. And it was a new beginning, an inauguration of sorts, but it was also a continuation of God's saving work for the fallen creation to be made or remade into the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, the clay being reworked by the potter. And the incarnation was the next part in that work of Almighty God. But as we come to our gospel passage today, which is in Mark chapter 13, verses 24 to 37, that's where we're going to spend most of this morning. So if you want to go ahead and open up your Bible to Mark 13, 24 to 37, or if you want to use one of our pew Bibles, you're welcome to do that. It's on page 850, 850 in the Black Pew Bibles. So as we come to this gospel passage today, it seems that Jesus' disciples are much like Isaiah, even as they are walking on the far side of the first advent of Christmas. They are actually walking, not only on the far side of it, they're walking with the guy. They're walking with the God-man, Jesus himself. And they're still asking, how long, O Lord? When will the final consummation of the saving work take place? When will the second advent happen? We can be patient if you tell us how long to be patient. Regardless, I don't care who you are, whether you're a prophet in the Old Testament or you are a disciple walking with the very answer to the prophet's prayer, waiting and patience with no idea of duration is hard. It is really hard and we don't like doing it. And Jesus is clear here in verse 32 that there will be no disclosure of the day or the hour of the second advent. But I think Jesus does give in this passage his disciples and then all of us reading this account in Mark's gospel some important and I would say needed assurances for this in-between time of our waiting. And what does Jesus give us? He gives us in these verses an anchoring promise, a sobering call, and a comforting power. An anchoring promise, a sobering call, and a comforting power. So, you know, there are some who might try, and plenty have tried, to use a chapter like chapter 13 of Mark's gospel, like a decoder ring or a, like a treasure map. Uh, with clues to when the day and hour of the Lord's return will come, right? So Jesus says, you know, I don't even know. The angels in heaven don't even know. But these people, they will say, well, but we can figure it out. And we're going to. And we're going to tell you based on what the wind's doing and how the tea leaves look and what we're reading in this chapter of Mark 13. We're going to tell you when it's coming. It's a futile effort. Maybe you know folks who've done that. But again, Jesus is clear here. He, he says it very clearly. No one knows. The angels don't know, and I, the Son, don't know. Only the Father knows when the day and hour will come. But what Jesus does give here, and in plenty of other places in Scripture, is a promise that, in fact, the day of his return 
will most assuredly come. There's no ambiguity about that. If it's, it's not if, it's when his day will come. Just look to verses 24 to 27 and, and how matter-of-factly he describes his coming. Right? The word will is used five times in this one little section as an auxiliary verb before other verbs of, of action, things that are going to happen, various things that will lead up to the eventual main actions that we read about in verses 26 and 27. He writes, and, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And then again in the lesson of the fig tree, in verses 28 to 31, Jesus is making definitive statements of the inevitability of his second Advent. It will be like the inevitability of summer coming. Although you are currently making your way in a hard, difficult season of winter, and then hopefully that'll be spring, summer will come. It's inevitable, just like every season of summer comes every year. To know that it will come to pass that the Son of Man, Jesus the Christ, will return in great power and glory, that the day of the Lord is a promise, it should be an anchor for those who believe. As Patrick Slabs talked about in his sermon a few weeks back, it's, it's like putting uh, your finger in the book and then jumping ahead and reading the last chapter uh, before you get there and then going back to where you were and where you are. And we need an anchor in times like the in-between, like this, because Jesus is also clear that in this in-between, it is a cold, cold winter. Laura Ingalls Wilder's long winter has nothing on this. It is a cold winter before the summer. The affliction of tribulation before the glory is hard. And it must come, and it does come, before the elation of the consummation of the new creation. There's a sobering call here to us all in this in-between season. We are no less in a sort of Jerusalem in rubble. And today it's almost too close for comfort, isn't it? We're just in the same boat as the prophet Isaiah and as the disciples were. In the parable at the end of our passage, Jesus does a subtle thing, though, in these hours that he lists in verse 35, right? He says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. Why would he use those like that in even choosing this rooster crow bit? Well, these are the very same hours that come in the next couple chapters, 14 and 15. They match up perfectly with the hours of the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, right? So the evening, that's when he will share the Last Supper with his disciples, his friends, Midnight, 
It's when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to the Father that this cup of crucifixion would pass from him. It's where and when Judas comes and betrays him with a kiss. When the rooster crows, well, we know that. That's when his good friend, Peter, denies him three times. In the morning, that's when he stands trial before Pilate and is delivered over to be crucified. And now Jesus speaks of these same hours as the possible times when the master might return. These hours are hours of hardship, of suffering, and sacrifice. And that's what the winter will be like. That's where the sobering call takes place. That's the winter to which Jesus is pointing and the sobering call is to stay awake and face these hours and not lose hope. And this is why the patience is so onerous. It's hard in the best of times, but it is certainly hard, harder in the grueling difficulty, the suffering, the tribulation. And, you know, I don't know all the stories in this room. I know some of them, and there is some grueling, terribly difficult suffering represented in the lives of you all here in this room. I know it. And yet, we think about suffering around the world. Some of my colleagues and I were talking about it this week, of like, what would it be like to wait with patience if the suffering looks like you are in a dark tunnel under Gaza right now as a hostage, or you are in a prison as a prisoner of war, or you are in a trench as a soldier in the Donbass of Ukraine, Does the anchor of assurance that he will come again to bring judgment on the earth and to wipe away all evil, does it, that anchor, that promise, is it alone enough to deal with the reality of the sobering call, the, the coldness of the winter, and to wait patiently? I don't think so. I don't think that's enough. Especially if we think this parable presents actually a picture of a master who goes away only to come back to bust us for falling asleep. And maybe you've seen the bumper sticker, right, that says, quick, look busy, Jesus is coming back. And some of us read this passage and we think in that, those terms, don't we? That, that this is actually a God who is watching with his arms crossed, kind of expecting we're going to screw up and to come back and to nail us for it. Is this parable one that fills you with hope or dread? I think it's easy to read this parable about the second coming and come away filled with dread at the return of Jesus as judge. And if you are in the midst of deep and abiding and like unrelenting suffering, it's easy to forget any of this is even possible that he would ever come back. And if we're motivated by that dread, oh my goodness, will we ever feel peace? Is there any good news here? Yes. Yes, there is. This call to endure and faithfully face the hours of suffering and sacrifice in the in-between 
is sobering. To be united in suffering is sobering. But I want you to know that Jesus also gives us here a comforting power. As I said, these hours in verse 35 match up precisely with the hours of the events that come in chapters 14 and 15 as Jesus moves closer and closer to his cross. Verse 34, the master, he leaves the servants in charge and he gives them their work, which is to be awake and to face the hours of evening, midnight, the cocks crow, the morning, no matter what it is. But remember, these hours are the hours that Jesus has already, he's already faced head on and he has conquered them for his servants. The going away is the ascension. The ascension comes after the cross and the resurrection, remember? And remember that Jesus the Son doesn't know the hour of his return either. So that means that the crucified and resurrected victorious Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, ascended to the right hand of the Father, is awake. And he is watching with us. And for us, until the Father gives him the word, son, it's time to return. And he said it again and again uh, in the word. John 14, 18, after he promised to send his Holy Spirit, his comforter, he said, I will not leave you as comfortless orphans. I will come to you. Matthew 28, 20, the Great Commission. What does he say right at the end after he's given the Great Commission? What are his last words, parting words before ascending to the Father? He says, and behold, I am with you always. To when? To the end of the age. We do not have to patiently wait alone and in the dark bracing against the cold winter, dreading the return of the master, kind of slapping our cheeks to stay awake. But rather we do it behind Jesus' faithful facing of his hours leading to the cross. And we do it with the gift of his spirit with us and in us and we do it with him interceding on our behalf eternally always waiting and watching with us until the day of his return to make all things new when that day comes and it will come we have that promise guaranteed it's an anchor now with that whole picture what might we do? With that anchor and that comforting power, what might come? One of my friends recently was asking a group of us this question of, like, if you know, and there's promises in God's word, read in First Peter, he says it, it's a, it's a guaranteed, secure promise of salvation. If you know it's, the win is guaranteed, how much you live in the in-between time? it's secure, it is certain how might you live. What might you risk? What might you give? How might you stand? What posture might you take? 
And if we all did that, what difference might we make? If we were keeping one another awake together, facing the hours together, knowing that Jesus already did and that he will come again and he will be with us all along the way. This is the power of Jesus, the master's infinite love for us. And what comfort that gives. Yeah? And so, we have an anchoring promise that he will return and make all things new, make all the sad things come untrue. We have a sobering call in the in-between space here between the first and second advents to face the hours of suffering and sacrifice that mark our lives here. But we have this gloriously comforting power of Jesus' perfect love shown in his own sacrifice, facing the hours all the way until that ninth hour of Good Friday when he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last upon the cross. That's the power that will keep us awake until his return. Oh, Lord. Rend the heavens and come down. But until then, we will wait patiently because of your comforting power. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in this season of Advent, we mark the time in a particular way. We mark the hours in a particular way. And help it, Lord, inform us for all the hours of our days until your return. And give us hope in that anchoring promise. Give us courage and perseverance and peace and humility and generosity in that sobering call as we face our hours. And Lord, give us abiding power in that glorious, comforting, perfect love that you have given us. We praise you, we adore you, O Christ. We say, come, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.